All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people this morning. We thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we thank you for calling us and gathering your people in various local churches all over the earth. And we ask that this morning you would draw near, that you would give us a fresh excitement, love for, and zeal for the church. And we ask for uh, Josh Van Griff and his family that you would heal them from COVID and that you would give him energy and perseverance to serve his family. And we ask for all the various forms of suffering that are represented in this room from grief from the death of husbands and wives and children to um, the long-term suffering of unconverted children to the, the desire to be married and not being married to various physical and financial forms of suffering to loneliness and um, depression and um, just the quote-unquote normal uh, woes and, and hardships of this life from difficulties at work and um, strivings and parenting. Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us, help us, energize us, and um, help us as we seek to enter into the sufferings of one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts 2. I like to think of Acts 2 as the birth story of the, of the church. You can tell I'm still in the little years talking about birth stories. Um, all right, so we're going to read various portions of Acts 2, and I would just encourage you just to listen. I'm going to skip around, and I'm not going to let you know where I'm skipping to. All right, so what we want to see is in Acts 2, we have the, the prefigurings of what comes in the full establishment of the church. What the church's birth is representative of how it's lived out in the New Testament. Now, we're not looking at Acts 2 as if this was the pristine thing that we should all um, seek to emulate in, in um, minute detail. At the early church had its problems, just like the modern church. Think of the reason for deacons. The reason for deacons wasn't love for service. It was disunity. Um, think of the New Testament letters. Basically, every single one, if not every single one, of the New Testament letters is written, prompted by some form of sin and need for correction. Um, so there is, no, there is no pristine, specific church to look at. There is no pristine time for the church. What we want to do when we read a book like Acts is we want to draw out the principles. We have to make a decision about whether these descriptions are to be followed in detail whether they're be to be what I like to call principalized, draw out the principle, then apply that to new settings. It's not, it's not as easy as saying um, things like, well, the Acts of the Apostles were the Acts of the Apostles, so we don't do any of it. Or we follow it just like an epistle. When we get to descriptions in the New Testament, we have to make prudent decisions about what is to be done with these descriptions. All right, so anyway, Acts 2. When, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, the sound, at, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, and after, after Peter's sermon, the first sermon um, that essentially um, the Spirit gives birth to the church and then this is the first New Testament sermon. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Now, when you hear that word baptized, you should hear that as repent and be a member of a church. That's what baptism is. It's a, it's a sign given to the institution of the local church. So baptism is shorthand for church membership. And notice how all these things are so closely connected. In the New Testament, the idea of being a Christian the church and being a church member are all lumped together. They're not nicely separated in the way we think about it. It's, it's all one thing. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's not a church member. To say that someone is a church member is to say that they're a Christian. And to say that someone's a Christian and not a church member is to cause cognitive dissonance in the mind of the New Testament. Um, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness. And continued to exhort them. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So these who received the word were baptized and they were added. Or as the text will go on to say later, just in a refrain, they were added to the number. They were added to the number. They were added to the number. That's another way of saying they were added to the church as members. They were counting them and they were added to the number. And then we'll see that they were all together. So th those who received the word were baptized and they were added. That day, about 3,000 souls. And they, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For us, the New Testament, the scriptures, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And notice that each one of those statements is articular. It has a the. It's talking about a specific thing. The prayers, a prayer meeting, the breaking of the bread. The Lord's Supper, the fellowship, the gathering of the church. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, notice all those, alls, 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 um, believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, two comments. One, it's often uh, kind of pounced on that, well, the New Testament church was just like this house church, disparate gatherings, unorganized, um, uninstitutional. That's not the case. Listen to all the alls. And then, and then the, the objection will come, well, where did 3,000 people meet? Well, I'm no um, first century historian, but the text says later in, um, in chapter 5, well, I can't find it here. I saved it. Where is it at? Let's see. It says in chapter 5 that they were all together in Solomon's portico. How big was Solomon's portico? I guess big enough to hold the 3,000 souls that just got saved. So we have to disabuse ourselves of this idea that the New Testament church was just all these little house gatherings. There were house gatherings, and it goes on to say, and day by day um, they were meeting together and having uh, their food and fellowship. What are those? Basically small groups. But that didn't take the place of them all being together as a congregation. All right, so three principles then to help us as we, um, as we think through uh, the New Testament. All right, so often when we think of fulfillment, we tend to think of it as, here's a promise, and then boom, fulfillment in Jesus, full stop. But that's not actually how it works. The, the, we need to learn a couple of things. One, there's partial fulfillment. So let's take the theme of the temple. So, so far in this class, what we've done is we put the, we put the big story together through the covenants. The covenant of creation, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with uh, Israel, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. So that's the big <coughs> puzzle. Now what we want to learn how to do as we read the Bible is we want to look at the picture and we want to be able to trace the various themes and understand how the realities change. Because this is not just a literary reality. We're not just doing word association with our Bible open. When things are fulfilled, that changes the existential experience of the Christian. It's not just a, a mental um, thing that's going on. We're not just finding words that connect in Scripture. These actually have real um, significant differences and results when things are fulfilled. Two things happen when something is fulfilled. One, certain things are filtered out. And two, other things are escalated. They grow. They get really better, not just bigger, but better, qualitatively different. Not just quantitatively different, but qualitatively different. So let's think about one theme. Let's take the theme of temple. Now, the Garden of Eden was a temple garden. What's a temple? It's a place where you meet with God. What was going on in the garden? Um, you know, somebody sing the old hymn, they walked with me, and he talked with me, and so he was with them in the garden. And if you think about the garden, what we usually say the Garden of Eden, but that's not actually what the text says. It says it's a garden in Eden. So there's three spaces, just like the temple. In the temple, there was the, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. We see that same structure with the garden. I don't have time to go into it in detail, but we also see that same structure with Noah. So the garden is pictured as a temple in so many ways. When God says to Adam, keep the garden, the same verb that uses the priest's work 
in the tabernacle, the temple. So the first temple is the garden. Remember, after that, Abraham um, is in Bethel, and he meets Yahweh in prayer. So there's another temple. Shiloh is the place where the temple was ultimately uh, going to be at one point. Then in Jerusalem. Then when we get to um, then when we get to John 2, we find that Jesus is the temple. So let's slow down and think about it for a second. Before John 2, when Jesus fulfills the temple, and I don't think just John 2 in the text. Think, I don't mean that. I mean what, before Jesus came. Because the Gospels are written after the fact. They're all written after the resurrection. They're all like ESPN um, dialogue on the, on the game. They're written after the fact. So Christ fulfills the temple. He himself, the person of Christ, is where you meet God. So now, what has changed since Christ himself is the temple? Well, the temple is no longer a place. It's a person. You no longer have to go to this place, particularly to meet with God. So how does that, how does that change things for the church? How is the church different as a temple than Israel was different when they went to the temple? So once we have all these partial fulfillments, then the promise or the trajectory or the theme is filled full in Christ. And then it overflows to the church and its members. We want to keep that phrase, the church and its members. And when I say church, I don't mean universal. I don't mean every believer on the face of the earth. What I mean is this, local churches, local, local churches, each individual faithful gospel preaching local church. So every time I say church, I mean local. So how are the people a temple? They're a temple in two ways. One, each person is a temple of the Holy Spirit because he or she is indwelt permanently with the Holy Spirit. So what I like to do is think of this, that aspect of being a temple as the holy place. So there's three, remember? The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies or the most holy place. But then when we come together, we're the most holy place. So you see, because we're united to Christ by faith, it's not just fulfillment, full stop, done over. The promises which Christ fulfills overflow to the church and its members. The other principle that we want to grab a hold of is this principle called the already not yet tension. So in the Bible, it talks about there being two ages. This age and the one to come. Now, you know that as you read the gospel, there's all kind of confusion. Who's Jesus? When are you going to deliver us from these Romans? What in the world is going on? And we usually give them a hard time. But the reason why they're so confused is because from the Old Testament perspective, looking into the future, there's only one resurrection, not two. They're just waiting for one resurrection and the new heaven and new earth to come. And they really didn't have much of a reason to wait for anything else until new light was shed. Now, looking back on it, we can see the glimmerings of two resurrections. But from their perspective, they did quite a good job. All right, so there's this age, but then Jesus comes, and the age to come 
breaks into this age. So that's why we call it the already, the age to come. It's already come, but not yet complete. And there's a tension. And that tension is so important to get for your Christian life. Because are you a new creation, John? Yes. Why do you still sin? Because of the already not yet tension. We are new, but we have remaining sin. And that reality applies to adoption. It applies to the church. The church is the temple. But man, some of you are hard to like. <laughs> the already not yet tension. No. And, it, and then it's that way with the whole Christian life. Nothing is, is fully realized yet, but it is real. It's just not complete yet. Um, all right. And the last principle, we'll come back to those, but the last principle is, I think I took the long way, didn't I? I should have went that way. This is the microcosm of my directional abilities. I really like that. All right. So, so first we have promises. They're fulfilled in Christ. Then the church and its members, and I left a part out. And then they're consummated in the new heaven and new earth. Okay? And so the last principle that we want to um, remember is, and you might want to, this, this one's helpful. They're all helpful, but the church is what she is because Jesus is who he is. If you ask yourself, what is the church? You can find, if you find anything that you can't see of Christ, it's likely not a true statement. The church is what she is because Jesus is who he is. Everything that we are as the church gathered and its members is because we are united to Christ by faith. So when we're describing the church, it won't do just to have one illustration, one description. How many ladies, of the ones of you who are married, does it, who remembers shopping for the wedding dress? Well, you, were you looking for more than, well, it just needs to be white? Well, you were looking for a certain texture, a certain cut, um, a certain style. There was much more to your wedding dress than just it would be white. That might have been what your husband thought, but there was more to it than that. He, well, he had two things in mind, that it would be white and how much did it cost. Um, or maybe your dad bought it. And in that case, that's what your dad had in mind, that it would be white and how much did it cost. Um, and it's the same way with the church. It won't do just to have one description. There's a multiplicity of descriptions, and we want to look at, we want to look at six of them. All right. And for each one of these, we're thinking the church and its members. The church and its members. In order for these to be applied to you, you have to be a member. Not necessarily of this church, but you we need to be a church member because these apply to the church and its members. All right, so the church and its members are a people of the new creation. The birth, um, with the coming of Christ, God's new creation came in a person that is in Christ. He is the, the man of the new creation. Uh, Christ's new creation in Christ, the new creation has arrived in a new people. As Paul puts it, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. If you're a note taker, write down that way of saying it. If, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's not just that you are a new creation. It's that you're actually part of the new creation. 
you, you're not a new creation. You are new creation. The, the, and that's not a Derek flourish. That the uh is not there. Um, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The birth of the church and its members is pictured as a new creation in Acts 2. You have to remember that in Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same word for wind and for breath. So think of, think of the creations, um, Genesis 1. The spirit hovered over the face of the, uh, of the deep. Think of the, um, the new creation in the church. What did the spirit do? He hovered over the people um, and gave them new birth. So the, the birth of the church is pictured as a new creation. Let me read that for you. When, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing wind, pneuma, spirit. And it filled the entire house and they, where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So the birth of the, of the New Testament church is pictured as a new creation. The birth of its members is pictured as a new creation. Remember, John is written after Acts 2. So when he talks about, when John 3, 8, when it says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The church and its members is pictured as a new creation. And when you read the Gospels, you have to, when you read the New Testament, you have to remember, the New Testament is an ecclesiastical document. It's a document written to the church. That's why just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus starts talking about the church. Well, the church hasn't come yet. But the Gospels were written after the fact. Um, Christ is the first man of the new creation. And through his resurrection, through faith in him, we are raised up to newness of life. Think of Ephesians 2. So think, already not yet tension, Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, in which you once walked, um, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sums of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, um, made us alive together with Christ. So we are alive. We are alive. And so he made us alive and he, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's just not Christ's death that concerns you. It's his resurrection and his ascension. You are made alive with him. You are raised up and you are currently seated spiritually with Christ in the heavenly places. And this gives you victory over the principalities and powers. Think about what it says. Um, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And then we had that same language in the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6. So Christ has taken care of your um, major three problems in fundamentally. He's taken care of your struggle with sin, your fight against the world, and your fight with the devil. He's taken care of those fundamentally. And yet, 
There is still a struggle. Let's, let's review some, um, some new covenant realities. Think about the passage of Jeremiah 31. Um, the, the looking forward to the new covenant. Remember, Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy. It's, it's coming in the future. It can't, now. Jeremiah 31 promises a people with the law written on their heart. A people who know Yahweh. And you've got to remember that Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is the covenant name of God. I'd encourage you to say Yahweh when you read it. Because we already have a word, Lord. So when we just say Lord and Lord, you know, when it's lowercase and when it's all caps, it doesn't mean anything different to us, different to us in our minds. But Yahweh is the covenant name of God. So all those people who know Yahweh, those are really converted people. A, a people with their sins fully forgiven. In the Mosaic Covenant, the, 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 the sacrifices look forward to the Savior, but their sins weren't fully forgiven yet. They were still waiting for that. Day after day, they had to sacrifice. Think of the New Covenant passage in Ezekiel 36. It prophesies a people who are cleansed, who are clean, a people who have a new heart, a people who are permanently indwelt with the Spirit, a people who are careful to obey Yahweh. So if all this is true, then why do we sin? While we are new creation, we still have remaining sin. We are not sinners. That's not your fundamental identity. It's not true of you that you are a sinner. You sin, but that's not your identity. You're not fundamentally a sinner. Jeremiah 17.9 doesn't apply to you. Jeremiah 17.9 says that Israel's heart was deceitfully wicked above all things. Genesis 6, where it talks about the intentions of their heart were continually evil all the time. That's untrue of you. You have a new heart. And you still struggle with sin. Now, um, you know, we, we're all quick to, somebody's going to raise their flag and say, Romans 7, I'm getting there, hold on. But first, remember Romans 15, 14. Listen to what Paul says. Paul um, says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, think Jeremiah 31, and able to instruct one another. Um, that he's, he's referencing Jeremiah 31. He has, he has the new covenant in mind when he says that. You're filled with goodness. Brothers and sisters, don't just remember Romans 3. There is no one good, no, not one. Remember Romans 15. Now, but what about Romans 7? Romans 7, um, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And we all have had those seasons, those moments in the day. And yet we have to remember that Romans 6 comes before Romans 7. And Romans 8 follows it. What are we told in Romans 6? The first command in Romans is, Consider yourself, brother or sister, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We have the ability to obey. Not perfectly. But we have the ability to obey. God has not only given us a clean conscience and a desire to obey, but He has given us the ability by His Spirit. And Romans 8 teaches us as much. Listen to Romans 8, 3, starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Think Old Covenant. That's what He's talking about. That's His way of summarizing everything that came before Christ. Um, by sending 
his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, here comes our part, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's not just talking about the righteous requirement for death because of sin. That was fulfilled in Christ. He died for us. The curse of the law is put away for us. But listen to what it goes on to say in the next words. Fulfill in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit is possible. It's got to be possible. Um, but make no mistake, true obedience is only possible God's way. By the, or, by the use of the ordinary means of grace. Okay? You, need, you need personal devotion and corporate devotion. You know, in, in centuries before us, people would have thought of the corporate devotion before the personal. The personal was the, um, the other course, the dessert. The corporate was the main meal. Because what do you get? You get the preaching of God's word, the praying of God's word, the singing of God's word, the encouragement from the people of God's word. Exhort one another while it's called today. Stir one another up to love and good works. And then we go home and we read the Bible and we pray um, so that we can be an encouragement and persevere and encourage our brothers and sisters in the gathered assembly. We usually think about prayer meeting helps me to pray. I would submit to you that it might be more helpful to think a while of Praying in my closet helps me at prayer meeting. They, they feed each other. But we need to give more precedent to, to this because God has made it such that you can't... The baptism and the Lord's Supper are church ordinances. They're not personal issues. You can't take the Lord's Supper with chips and a Coke in your closet at home. But those are means of grace. And if you're going to persevere to the end, you've got to do it God's way. Um, the church and its members, number two, the church and its members are a transcultural community. A transcultural community. Um, as we saw in the book of Acts, we had Jews from all over the place. And then we know if we keep reading in Acts, um, actually we didn't see that because I didn't read that part, but you have Jews from all over the place, all these names that are difficult to say. Um, and we learn in Acts 10 that what was promised for the Jews is now given also to the Gentiles. Listen to a couple of verses in that, um, in that realm. Christ reconciled, I only have 10 minutes left? All right. Christ reconciled Jews and Gentiles and by extension made possible reconciliation between cultures within the institution of the local church. Christ reconciled Jews and Gentiles and by extension he made possible the reconciliation of all cultures within the local church. Not peace for the world. That's not what's promised. Peace within the church is what's promised. Peace between her members. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female or male. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring. Is there any identity that you're tempted to let take precedent 
any secondary identity that you're tempted to let take precedent over your being a member of Heritage Baptist Church. When you think of yourself, along with being a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a sister, a brother, a worker, you ought to think of yourself as a church member. And as you're sitting in front of your computer on social media about to post something, one question that's legitimate to ask is, is what I'm about to post, is that going to help the unity of my local church? Because I post as a church member. We need to ask ourselves, are we letting our cultural and political identities take precedent over our church membership identity? Um, the church um, and its members are the temple, are a temple. The church is what she is because Jesus is who he is. He's a temple. And I'm going to skip all this, right? But when you come here, when you gather in the sanctuary, in the gym on, on Sunday mornings, you are in the Holy of Holies. And that's the only time the whole week that you're in the Holy of Holies. That place is where Christ, the, asc- the ascended Spirit of Christ, walks among his people and that's what revelation teaches us that he walks among his lampstands so we ought to give thought there's no there's no there's no verses in scripture that say what should you do on saturday night what should you do to prepare for church what should you wear how should you um there's verses that say how you should act but we do have a principle that that when we gather as a congregation we are with christ in a way that we're not with christ the rest of the week we are his temple, so that ought to, we, we, we have to learn to think principally. We just can't always look for proof text. If you need a proof text, there's no reason why one of your kids can't have a jan- transgender reassignment surgery because there's no text for that. So it won't do just to say, well, show me a verse. We have to learn how to think in theological principles. So here's your principle. The gathered church is a temple. How then shall we live? Um, the church and its members are a family the church and its members are our family, and we are members of the same body. Um, so all this familial language is used of the church. Think about what Jesus said in, in, um, in uh, Matthew, I think, looking forward to the church. Who are my mother's brothers and sisters? These are my mother's and brothers and sisters. The church doesn't make your responsibility to your earthly family less. It just includes other people in that. Um, now, think about this. We're, we're, we're members of the same body. Why? Because we share the same spirit. We share the same spirit. It's often said to me, well, I don't have pain like you, or I don't know what it's like for you, and, and I grant that. But you, we do have the same spirit. So there's something that's possible between me and Carla that's not possible to, between me and the lady who cuts my hair. The, the spirit can help us to enter in to one another's sufferings. The Spirit gives our gifts for the common good of this church. When you read the word member in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you should read that as church member. When you read the word church in 1 and 2 Corinthians, you should read that as local church. So often, we read that as the universal church and then it just fizzles out. But he's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to a local church. So, um, somebody tell me when my time is up, please. Okay. All right. So your gifts and your sufferings, your skills and your sufferings 
aren't just for you. They're for me and mine for you. So in the church, if, yeah, the skills and your sufferings. If I could do away with two phrases, it would be this. How are you doing? And call me if you need anything. Because how you're doing and call me if you need anything, they can come from a place of truth and a good heart. Don't get me wrong. But they also can demonstrate laziness on the part of the asker. Um, how you're doing is really unspecific. It doesn't have to, but it could demonstrate that you haven't thought about the person. You're not praying for the, through the church membership directory. And you really don't even want to really know how they're doing for real. Because you're already three steps down the hallway before um, the person gets the answer. Call me if you need anything. Um, if the person's in the midst of suffering, you call them. Why put the burden on them? Call them. Why don't, why, you, you, you sit down and think, okay, does this person have kids? Do they have a wife? What are they able to do? What are my skills? How can I help them? And then come with some ideas. Because when you're in long-term suffering, I guarantee you said this, I want to let people help, but I don't know how. I don't know what they could do. I don't have any ideas. I'm just all out. Um, and, you know, when you get that list of spiritual gifts in, in First and Second Corinthians, it's not a hard stop. There's other things that are included that aren't listed. And we usually think spiritual and think of like speaking in tongues and prophecy. But you know what's listed there? Administration. Just regular gifts, the stuff you do at work. So as you think about the widows of the church and going to visit them and, and you're looking through the church membership directory and praying for people week by week as you pray, try to pray for a page a day um, through the 30 days for the month, you, you should think about your skills and the people's needs and, and call them, check on them. Do, do what you can. Um, don't wait for somebody to say, will you do this or will you do that? Um, I could give you example after example of people, people serving us, but I'm just encouraging you. Don't rob yourself of the joy of waiting for somebody to ask you. And, don't, and, 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 and know that your suffering is for the other person. You know, pastors give a lot of thought before they take a church. They, they candidate, they look into the church, they ask this, they ask that, they interview, they do all this stuff. And then 10 years down the road, they look back on their time there and they can see why God put them in that place. Because God chooses where we are. Listen to this verse. Um, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Remember, that's not universal church. That's God put you and me here together. God put the reeds and the earlies together. And the reed sufferings are for the earlies. When Wiley cuts his hand and can't work, and I know that, my first thought ought to be, I wonder if Wiley has enough to pay his light bill. Better call and check on it. Um, all right, the church is an embassy and ambassadors. I know I'm basically out of time. John, just tell me to shut up when it's time. The, I'm going to skip that part. The, there, there is an authority that is given to the gathered church that's not given to you. One question that we need to ask is, where does the apostolic authority today lie? Where is it? It's in the gathered church. The gathered church is the one who holds the keys and has the authority to exclude and include people. And lastly... The church is exiles. The church is what it is because Jesus is who he is.
Think about Christ, the only man who was both man and God. There was nobody like him. Nobody he could confide in. Nobody who understood what he was going through because he was literally the only one. He came to his own people. His own people knew him not. His disciples always were messing stuff up and didn't get it until after the resurrection. His own mother didn't understand him. Brothers and sisters, we ought not expect, expect to be understood by this culture. We ought not expect to, we, know, we, know, we should not put our hope in, in, in being normal here. Um, if Jesus says, if the world hates you, know, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were uh, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. This is a fallen world. It's not abnormal. We live in this culture where everything seems to always go right and we have everything together and everybody puts their best face on Facebook. But just know, this is a fallen world and it's not strange when things don't go well. That is the norm. One day it won't be that way. But that day is not here now and it's not to be on this earth so we don't put our hope in it. Amen. You're dismissed.